Thank you, Bev. Let me pray uh, as we open up God's word. Uh, Dear Lord, we thank you that we can gather today uh, to remember uh, the resurrection and praise you for it. Lord, I pray as we open up uh, your word now that I will speak faithfully from it and that by your spirit you will help us to hear the things that we need to hear. Amen. It's April Fool's Day, so I thought we would begin by playing a little bit of a game. So what I'm going to show is two videos, and I want you to tell me whether they are fact or fabrication. Okay, so we had a few technical difficulties at 9.30. Shock horror. Let's see how we go this time. Fact or fabrication? Today's the day, mate. Come on, do it. We're good to go, mate. We're good to go. Okay, there's our first one. We'll just hit pause on that. Okay, so I'll have a, a, a vote from the crowd. Who's going for fact? Okay, very nervous. I'm not seeing a lot of confidence in that fact. Who's going for fabrication? Okay, everyone's a bit nervous. They're not quite sure, but you can't put both hands up. That's cheating. Okay, let's do uh, one more fact or fabrication. Okay, we'll have, a, we'll have another vote. Okay, this time round, who's going for fact? Who's going for fabrication? Okay, there's a lot more determination on the fabrication for the second one. You'll be pleased to know the first one was fact. The second was fabrication. Uh, but in one sense, it really doesn't make any difference, does it? Whether you get it right or wrong. You know, there's no... Uh, outcome. There's there's no negative consequence. In one sense, who cares? Uh, But when it comes to the resurrection, actually the truth matters. The facts matter. Because if it is true, then this is the best news that you could possibly ever imagine. That in this life there is a God, that God is in control, and even amongst all the chaos... There is hope and we have confidence in the future. That is brilliant news. But it's also news that demands a response, isn't it? If there is a God and that God wants something from us, then we'd better listen to him. Got music. But if it's just a fabrication, then what are we doing here today? If it's just a story to be retold, then really there is no genuine meaning here. And we may as well go and look somewhere else for real meaning and purpose in life. And the disciples know this. So a few days later, Peter is going to stand up in Jerusalem before thousands. And this is how he will testify. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. 
Therefore, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So Peter doesn't just point people to what happened on the cross. He points people to the resurrection. That if we can trust the resurrection, then we can trust what Jesus did for us on the cross. And in a similar way, the Apostle Paul speaks to the church in Corinth. And this is what he says about the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So on Good Friday, we reflected on what it meant for Jesus to be our substitute, to stand in our place, to die in our place, on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And so we come on Friday with, with a somber thankfulness for what he has done. But today, it's all about the power of Jesus, that he really is the Son of God who really did rise from the dead. And so today we come rejoicing that God really is in control. And as we look at our passage today, uh, there's a few emotions we need to go through before we get to rejoicing. In fact, uh, out of all the events of that day, we are only going to look this morning uh, at the first morning together. And so Luke will continue that journey, uh, starting in the morning and then later in the day with some uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus and then finally in the evening. But we're just going to look at one small portion of it. And what we're going to see is it's going to be quite an emotional journey. So before we get to rejoicing, we're going to have perplexed and terrified and confident and sceptical and amazed. So to give some context to where we are today, we've got to go back briefly to the Friday. So Jesus has been crucified and he is dead. And then one of the ruling council, a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, he comes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus, which was perhaps more courageous than we appreciate because uh, he's really standing against the opinion of his peers. His peers wanted to see Jesus crucified. And now he is standing up, wanting to give Jesus an honourable burial. And so he takes the body of Jesus and he wraps him in linen and he puts him in a tomb. But all of this is happening on the eve of the Sabbath. And for Jewish people, the Sabbath is a day of rest. So you can't do any work on the Sabbath, including even preparing a body for burial. And so they put him in the tomb. They roll this rock across the front of it to make sure that his body is safe. And then they have to wait. 
And so the Sabbath starts just before uh, evening on the Friday night. And it ends, and it's a very specific time, it ends when three stars can be seen in the sky on Saturday evening. And so for the women who want to give Jesus a proper, honourable burial, they have to wait. And so finally their opportunity comes first thing in the morning on the Sunday morning, the absolute crack of dawn. They go with the burial spices they've prepared to the tomb. But as they arrive at the tomb, they see that instead of it being sealed, it's open. And as they go inside, they find that the body of Jesus is gone. And you can imagine just in that moment how horrified they would have felt. And then, in the midst of it, you know, as we're just at the crack of dawn, these two angels appear and describes them as their, white, their clothing like lightning. Okay, that's a pretty dramatic entrance, isn't it? Yeah, and you can imagine, unsurprisingly, that they're absolutely petrified. When we read the account in Matthew, he goes into even more detail. When, when these angels arrive, they arrive you know, like there is an earthquake. And the soldiers who are there to, to guard the tomb and to guard the body of Jesus are so terrified that they are paralyzed with fear, so they look like they are dead. They're so overwhelmed by what they are experiencing. And these women are overwhelmed, so they fall flat on their face, terrified about what these men will do. But the men say to them, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is not here, he has risen. If you're going to make an outrageous claim, then you better be able to back it up with something pretty compelling. And I reckon, you know, with these two guys standing there, you know, looking like they're clothed in lightning, I reckon that would be a good start. You know, these women, when they, when they listen to these guys, they believe what they are hearing. But it's not what they expected. So one of the great, uh, I suppose, arguments against the resurrection is the idea or the suggestion that the disciples were so desperate to see Jesus alive that they genuinely believed it. They genuinely believed they saw Jesus alive, even though it was all in their head. And so when they stand up and say they're witnesses, it's not that they're lying, it's just that they're deluded. And they'll take that even to the point of persecution and death. One of the difficulties with that argument is that actually Jesus physically rising from the dead was way outside of any of their expectations. And so they thought that Jesus would rise again spiritually and he would be now with his father in heaven. And that was not an unreasonable conclusion. That was certainly what they were taught as part of their religious custom. So, for example, in John's account of Jesus' life, he recalls the events around Lazarus being raised from the dead. And so uh, a friend of theirs, Lazarus, has died. People call uh, Jesus to come and help. And then this is how the story continues. Jesus says to her, being Martha, the sister of Lazarus, your brother, your brother will rise again. 
Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So Martha understood who Jesus was, but her expectation was still that we die physically once in this life and we are then raised eternally for the next. And certainly that was the expectation of the Pharisees. So when Luke is recalling the events of Acts, Paul stands up in front of the Pharisees and he says, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees said there was no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. And so as the women go to the tomb that morning, they are going with funeral spices, with burial spices, to give the, the body of Christ a proper burial. If they'd expected to see Jesus rise from the dead, they would have gone with breakfast. But that wasn't their expectation. Their expectation was that they would get there and find the body of Christ. And as they arrive, the angels then declare that Jesus has risen. He reminds them of what Jesus said as they travelled to Jerusalem. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And for the first time, they're hearing and understanding. When Jesus said he would rise again from the dead, he literally meant rise again from the dead, like in this life, a physical resurrection. And the physical resurrection of Jesus is important because it testifies to three things. Firstly, and most importantly to Luke, it testifies to God's word being fulfilled. The whole word of God has been leading to this moment. From Genesis 1.1, this has always been part of God's plan. And he is now fulfilling his plans in both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so a little bit later on in this chapter, in verse 44, if you want to have a look, Jesus says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And God is being faithful to his word. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he's done that through his death on the cross. And it is evident and proven in his resurrection. Secondly, the resurrection testifies to our eternal salvation. Uh, in uh, World War II, uh, there was a POW by the name of Ernest Gordon uh, who wrote a book uh, entitled Miracle on the River Kwai, uh, which tells the story of his time as a, PM, as a POW on the Burmese Railway. And he recalls uh, the one event that is, uh, has become particularly famous and uh, particularly amongst uh, perhaps the Christian community because he was a Christian. 
Uh, and what would happen is at the end of each day, uh, the Japanese uh, soldiers would take account of the tools to make sure that nothing had been missing or that nothing could be used you know, against them to escape. And on this particular day, they do account and they discover that a shovel is missing. And he goes on to recall in the book, he says, he began to rant and rave, working himself up into a paranoid frenzy and ordered whoever was guilty to step forward. No one moved. All die, all die, he shrieked, cocking and aiming his rifle at the prisoners. At that moment, one man stepped forward and the guard clubbed him to death with his rifle while he stood silently to attention. When they returned to camp, the tools were counted again and no shovel was missing. Uh, it's a great uh, picture of sacrifice and substitution and atonement, paying the price for someone else, an innocent man taking the place of his comrades. Uh, as Christians, uh, perhaps it would even be a great illustration of what Christ has done for us. But it's one example amongst thousands of people who have sacrificed themselves for others. What Jesus did on the cross in terms of self-sacrifice and courage was not actually unique, not in the history of our world. In any culture, you will find stories of people who've been willing to die for someone else. And as barbaric as it was, it wasn't uniquely barbaric, dying on the cross. But what was unique is what it achieved. And in his resurrection, we can see that he really is qualified to take our place and to pay the price for our sin. And we can see that he really does have power over death. And he really can guarantee our future. So thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus testifies to our future hope. If Christ has been raised, then we can be confident as followers of Christ that he will be faithful to his promises and raise us up with him. So in the words of Paul, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To go back to our story of Lazarus, you know, he was raised from the dead, but sometime later, he will die again. But Jesus is different. Jesus has been raised to the dead, from the dead, and he will not die again. His body is no longer subject to decay and death. He doesn't go on to die of old age. He ascends to be with his father. He is seated at the right hand of the father. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And because that is true, we can be confident of our future in Christ. I think one of the wonderful things about going to a Christian funeral is the confidence and the hope that we have together. But sometimes I wonder whether we really believe it when we say they've gone to a better place. Now, I think sometimes we feel, you know, this is the best of it. This is the better version. And it, it's good that if you've got to go somewhere, then somewhere's better than nowhere, and, and heaven sounds pretty good. 
But I think sometimes we feel this is the five-star version and heaven's good, but probably more the four-star version. You know, if you've got to go somewhere else, then, then at least it's somewhere good. But think about this. If this is God's world, God's creation, he created all of this, and this has been marred by the consequences of sin and the brokenness of sin, then imagine what God has in store for us next, where there is no sin, where there is no brokenness. You know, we often feel this is the main game and heaven's the bit after. But actually, Jesus says, actually, this is the bit before the main game. This is what we've got to look forward to. And absolutely, we deeply grieve those people we love when they go. We mourn their loss. And so we should. We've been separated from people we love deeply. But we should also be confident about where they're going. And we should be confident about what they're going to. And we shouldn't be grieving for them. We're grieving for us. Because they are the ones who are sharing in the glory of God. And we can be confident of that resurrection and that hope because Jesus has already led the way. So to follow our emotional journey so far, we've got the women who've gone from perplexed to terrified. Uh, They are now leaving the tomb confident. Uh, They've seen the angels. The angels have declared that Jesus is alive. And so they then head back to the 11 disciples and the other disciples who were with them. And you can imagine the excitement when they get there, can't you? You know, they're, they're all talking at once you know, telling the story. And unsurprisingly, the disciples don't believe them because the disciples weren't expecting a physical resurrection any more than the women. But Peter, Peter shows this this hope and this optimism, doesn't he? He hears the story. He hears the events of what have just taken place and he gets up and he runs to the tomb. And we know from John's account that he doesn't do it alone, that that John goes with him. But for Luke, he's just focused on Peter because Peter is going to be another witness to this event. And so when Peter gets there, it's just as the women have told him. The tomb is empty and the linen is just lying there on the ground. And Luke kind of builds the tension at this time, at this moment, as he retells events. It's a bit like, you know, when you're watching your favourite TV show, you get to the last minute and it's all sort of coming, you know, to a head. You're not quite sure if they're going to live or die. And then what do they do? They cut to the credits. Yeah, fortunately, these days we have Netflix uh, and you just hit play and, and you, you know, you don't have to wait for too long. That's kind of what uh, Luke does in this moment. So we are left with Peter leaving the tomb, wondering to himself what has happened. Now, this isn't wondering as in, hmm, that's kind of curious. It's wondering as as if this is amazing. This is incredible. This is inconceivable. And yet it's happening. That's, That's how Luke leaves us with Peter. But then we go on and he sort of digresses for a moment and the 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 account moves to our two disciples later in the day heading out from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And actually, that's where we're going to stop today. 
We're going to stop at, on the brink of the rest of the story. It's kind of like your favourite TV show, you're slightly bitter. Uh, but that's okay. That, as we journey our way through Luke, we'll continue to see how people respond to the resurrection. But let me conclude today. You know, it's hard these days to know the difference between fact and fabrication. I think particularly in our era of modern video and the internet, there's just a gazillion ideas out there and everyone's saying what they have to say is true. And when it comes to the resurrection, the facts matter. The truth matters because there is a lot at stake. For those who believe there is eternal life at stake, for those who reject it, who refuse to believe, then we stand under the judgment of God. So there's a lot at stake. This is something you want to get right. And so Luke today, just even in these few words, wants us to be confident of what we believe. Jesus really is the son of God who came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus really has risen from the dead. And real people have been witnesses to the resurrection. And because of that, we are confident, not just in the present, of how we understand life and how we live, but we are confident for the future. And that's why we gather every week. We gather each week to praise God, to be thankful for his goodness to us. And that's why we gather today and we say, Christ is risen. And we respond, he is risen indeed. That's good news. Let me pray. Dear Lord, uh, we do thank you for the resurrection, that not only did you die for us, but that you have defeated death so that we can be confident of the hope that we have. Lord, I pray for each of us that you will convince us of that deeply. Uh, for those who are here today, who love you, who serve you, uh, I pray uh, that it enriches our heart. Uh, Lord, for those here today who perhaps aren't so convinced, Lord, I pray that in your grace and mercy that you convince them that it's true. And we pray for these things in your son's name. Amen.